Thanks for listening to this podcast from Christ Church of Orinoco. Our hope is that it would help you discover completeness in Jesus. Now for this week's teaching. When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Then the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to sound them. The first angel sounded his trumpet, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and it was hurled down on the earth. The second angel sounded his trumpet, and something like a huge mountain, all ablaze, was thrown into the sea. The third angel sounded his trumpet, and a great star, blazing like a torch, fell from the sky on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The fourth angel sounded his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon and a third of the stars, so that a third of them turned dark. The fifth angel sounded his trumpet, and I saw a star that had fallen from the sky to the earth. The star was given the key to the shaft of the abyss. When he opened the abyss, smoke rose from it like the smoke from a gigantic furnace. The sun and sky were darkened by the smoke from the abyss, and out of the smoke locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of scorpions of the earth. The sixth angel sounded his trumpet, and I heard a voice coming from the four horns of the golden altar that is before God, and the four angels who had been kept ready for this very hour and day and month and year were released to kill a third of mankind. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues still did not repent of the work of their hands. Nor did they repent of their murders, their magic arts, their sexual immorality, or their thefts. I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, Go and measure the temple of God and the altar with its worshipers. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it has been given to the Gentiles. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will appoint my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Now when they had finished their testimony, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the public square of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had tormented those who live on the earth. But after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. 
The seventh angel sounded his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven which said, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders, who were seated on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and who was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your people who revere your name, both great and small, and for destroying those who destroy the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the ark of his covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a severe hailstorm. Revelation 8 through 11. Good morning, church. Let's open our Bibles. Begin in Revelation chapter 8. We're going to be looking at these four chapters this morning. If you're visiting Christ Church, uh, my name's Mark. I get the privilege of being one of the ministers here. So if we haven't met, we're glad you're here. I like to say two things because it's important. We're glad you worship Jesus. And we're really encouraged you worship him with us today. So you encourage us and we hope we can encourage you. We are in the fourth week of this series called To Reveal Jesus. And there's something I want to remind us each and every week because I don't want us to forget. I think you know it, but I don't want us to forget. The purpose of the revelation of Jesus is not so we can make a calendar of events. It's actually so that we have the strength and encouragement to hold on, to not quit, to not give in when life is hard and it takes the breath out of us, but to really hold on, to realize that we're, we're not to speculate about the future. The revelation given to John was to encourage us that no matter what the future is, God is in control, and Jesus is the means of that control. So this week we're going to... Uh, the revelation is a sensory book. It requires that we look and that we listen and that we feel and that we allow ourselves to be taken in to what is being displayed Last week, I told you to, to pay attention to the details, to, to look at the imagery. Today, I want you to listen. I've entitled the message, He Warns, because it's very significant what God is doing in these four chapters. And only an idiot like me chooses to do four chapters in 28 minutes, right? But there's a reason why, because I'm convinced that if we begin to parcel out all the details, we're going to miss the message. So I'm not trying to gloss through this quickly, but taking these four chapters together allows us to hear the warnings of God in a very significant way because he is warning us through this. Now, in chapters 6 and 7, which we're not covering in this series, which allows me to give a commercial, I know some are frustrated because they're like, well, you jumped a chapter. Oh, let me explain. We want to be able to cover the themes of the revelation and how it reveals Jesus. If you want more, and I hope you do, on Wednesday nights, we have a class that takes place in here that's covering Revelation. Jim Dalrymple is teaching it. I've listened to the first two weeks and participated. It's fantastic. And it's going to do a deeper dive than we can do on a Sunday morning. If you can't attend Wednesday nights, you can go to our YouTube channel or you can listen to the podcast of Lessons in Bible Studies. And you can look us up, Christ Church of Orinoco, and there's three or four different channels. Choose the one about uh, Bible studies and Jim will be delivered right to you and whatever device you listen to a podcast on. So I hope that allows you to go deeper while listening to the themes as we talk about them on Sundays. So in chapter 6 and 7, there's, there's something that happens. You see, the scroll given to Jesus, there were seven seals on those scrolls. 
And each and every time one of those seals was broken open, chapter 6 and 7 shows us the judgment of God that was presented and how those that were in love with the world fought against him. And then we get to the end of chapter 7, and we're opening into chapter 8 where the seventh seal is broken. But the seventh seal brings out the seven trumpets, and that's as clear as mud, right? You're like, wait, is it seals or trumpets? I want you to, to get this from the beginning. The Revelation is not a chronological study. It's not teaching us this will happen and then this will happen and that can't happen until this. That's not what it's doing. It's a cyclical presentation. It's giving you this themes of what is taking place around God and in God's world. And it's giving you different approaches and angles to look at it. If you keep that in mind, you'll become less frustrated when you're trying to get a sequence going and the sequence just doesn't make sense or you can't find the meaning of it. So the seventh seal is open and it begins the trumpets. Well, we know biblically that trumpets announce warning or they announce victories. Jesus uses this imagery when he says on the last day the trumpet will sound and the dead in Christ will rise, right? That's a good, that's a good trumpet noise. For those who believe, that's a great trumpet noise. For those who don't, that's going to be a warning, the last warning, the final warning, and then God's judgment happens. So what are these trumpets? Uh, they're repeating symbols of God's judgment upon a world full of sin. And I want to do a little defense of God this morning. I know in a church service, I normally don't have to do this, but sometimes our theology can get a little bit warped by what we listen to and what we pay attention to. And I'd like to just refine it and refocus it a little bit. God's judgment is upon sin. I'm going to say something a bit controversial. God's judgment isn't necessarily upon sinners unless those sinners won't repent. God's judgment is on sin, and the trumpets and the bowls and the, the seals in the revelation are on what sin is doing to God's creation. It's destroying the people that God loves, the creation that he made, and sin has brought things into it that were never intended to. God's judgment is on sin, and those who are in love with sin are called sinners. And if sinners don't repent of their sin, God's judgment will fall on them too. Do you see how this works? The warning in Scripture is to warn us that sin is shallow and incomplete and damaging and devastating and deathly. And those who are loyal to it will receive all of those things. So God is warning us in the trumpets. And if you pay attention to chapters 8, 9, 10, and 11, you're going to notice if you listen, you're going to hear the echoes of the Old Testament resounding through what's being said. You're going to be taken to Exodus chapter 7 through 12 and the plagues, the 10 plagues that came upon Egypt. If you pay attention and listen to what we're reading and thinking about, you're going to say to yourself, I've heard this before. I've heard this before. You see, the 10 plagues on Egypt was when God came and said, you've enslaved my people. Notice the slavery to sin. You've enslaved my people, and I'm going to free them. And the way God freed them was, if, you, if you'll notice, God began just knocking over their gods, one by one by one. All the things that they held true, all the things that they put their, their faith and hope in, the, the Nile River, the, their crops, their cattle, the, the God that they worshiped, the moon and the sun, and all of the Egyptian gods, God just began, one by one, knocking them over. He was showing them that their sin was in ineffective, that it was ruining their lives and they had no one to turn to. They were relying on no real power. There was nothing substantive to what they were worshiping. And so God began to display that I can take the river out and I can take your cattle out and I can take your crops out and I can darken the sun. 
And he was warning them that they were investing themselves in something that was futile rather than repenting and returning to him. The first four of the trumpets actually go after their little gods of creation, the things in creation that they worship. The first trumpet, you have hail and fire coming down and destroying the grass and the trees and the land. The second trumpet, you have a mountain is hurled into the ocean and a third of the ocean's waters and all of its life and trade turn to blood. Sound familiar? Do you remember that in the 10 plagues? The third trumpet, a star falls from the sky and infects the earth's rivers with poison and causes death to those who drink from them. The river was the lifeblood of a community. You'll notice even in America, the greatest cities are always founded on what? Water. Our largest metropolitan areas are always surrounded by water because people needed water to survive. And God was saying something to them. The fourth trumpet, the sun, the moon, and the stars were struck, and it reminds you of the, the night of darkness when the sun was blotted out before the Passover. And you can see the first four trumpets. God is toppling over the gods that they worshipped to get their attention. But even in the midst of this, he was knocking over their gods, but do you notice who he was keeping alive and allowing them a chance to repent? The people. So when we, we have this indictment on God that he's a God of judgment and all he loves to do is smite, I want to tell people, read the scripture. You're going to find a God that is slow to smite because he's good. He's gracious. He's warning us of what's coming that he does not want to come upon us because he will judge sin and sinners loyal to sin will be judged for their actions. The fifth and sixth trumpet, they're on personal judgments. They're judgments against the idolatry and the immorality of the people. Here it comes. Here's where the sinners are called to account. I've knocked your gods over. Now who are you going to worship? Look at chapter 8, verse 13. Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth. Warning. Warning, don't let sin become what you worship. And it's true. There's been several books writ writ written recently. I'll learn words in a minute. Uh, and it said you are what you worship. And if you want to preamble to what the mark of the beast is, it's not a vaccine. It's what you worship. It's where your loyalties lie. It's what you really, really love deep down in your soul. You're marked by that. And so in the midst of all of this, we're told, do not fall in love with creation when you can love the creator, the greater. And then I remember, and I, I know this is ridiculous, but I hope it's helpful. I was 14 years old. It was 1979. American hostages were taken by Iran, and they were held against their will. And it's the first time I could ever read in history that America was getting punked. It's the first time we weren't the bully. And we were being bullied and being threatened. And they wouldn't release them by threat. And it was, it was frightening me. So I did what every 14-year-old would have done, right? I began to read Revelation because I was going to figure it out. Because I kept hearing about the rising up in the Middle East and the great battle of Armageddon and all these things. And I'm telling you, it scared the socks off my 14-year-old self. And I began to read passages in this that were like, what? What is that? What are these scorpions? And, and people trying to run to the mountains and they just want to get away from it. And they want to die, but they can't even kill themselves. They, they have to live in this agony and this torture. And I began to panic. You see, I made a big mistake in my Bible study. I did it by myself. And I was young and I wasn't informed. And a lot of us, we have a lot of theories on the scripture that we founded on our own study. But listen, the Bible is meant to be studied in community as we sharpen one another and we grow together and we don't isolate ourselves in our Bible study. So if you're only having Bible study alone, I caution you, 
You can be misled by your own interpretations. It's community, the fellowship. And anyway, I was having this, and then someone pointed out to me, and it freed me because I was, I was scared. And then I'm supposed to go to church on Sunday and worship a God who's going to let the mountains fall on me and have these scorpions attack me and these, you know, transformer robots or these horses coming after me. And I was just freaking out. Now I'm supposed to go to church and worship God? I'll pass. And one of the reasons we want to study this is because a lot of people have bought into poor theology. But some book you got at Walmart. And you're reading it and going, well, that's what it must mean. No, no. Study this. God is warning us. And you'll notice here, when he comes down on immorality and idolatry, it says unbelievers. And why is God taking unbelievers to task so that they become what? Believers. The goodness of God, it pours out in this passage. Look at verses 20 and 21 of chapter 9. I know for those of you journaling, you're like, there's whole pages I haven't touched. You'll get there. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the work of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immoralities or their thefts. Some of the saddest words in the Revelation are those who were given a chance to turn refused. They would not repent. They would not quit lying and stealing. They, they conti continued in their thievery and their immorality, their, their sexuality, their sorcery, their murder. They were continually using the things that God gave them as a blessing against people and harming people and harming themselves. And they would not heed his warning. They were just like Pharaoh. I want you to think about this. The reason God warns us is because we all have Pharaoh's heart somewhere in our own, don't we? You know, I mean, Pharaoh finally gets pinned to the mat. At the 10th plague, he cries uncle, and he frees the Israelites. And then what does he do? He then turns around right after that and sends his army after them to get them back because his idolatry and immorality was founded on what he lost, not what he gained, an awareness of God. So why do we have these trumpets? What can we take from it? God is giving the world warning. God is warning all of us, believers and unbelievers alike. Unbelievers to turn toward grace. Believers to hold on, to endure, to remain faithful. The physical destruction, the spiritual battles, the natural death are all the effects of sin. And God is calling us to stay awake, to endure, to fight on, to hold on. We are not in peacetime. I know living in the States, there's not persecution against believers. Yes, there's legislation out there that's got a, a bunch of people and rightfully riled about what could happen to our freedoms to worship and, and several other factors going on. Trust me, church, at the end of the day, nothing can stop us from worshiping our God. Nothing. Nothing at all. We are not in peacetime. It's easier on this side of the pond than it is in other places of the world. But don't you doubt for a moment, the, war, the church is in war against the culture and the evil of this age. And we need to take that serious. The purpose of Revelation is not to promote speculation about the future. The purpose of Revelation is to compel faith-filled action in the now. Be faithful. Shane taught us in week one of this series that in verse three it says to obey the prophecy. And how do you obey a prediction? And then he giggled, right? You remember that? Well, you can't obey a prediction because that's not what the prophecy is. The prophecy is God's promise, God's warning, God's awakening. Obey what he's telling us. That's why this morning it's not as important that we see what he's saying, but that we're listening to the warning we've been given. 
chapter 8, verses 2 through 5, I want you to see something significant. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar with the gold censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on the earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Do you remember that that last verse teaches us? Do you remember that from last week? Anytime in the Revelation you hear thunder, you see lightning, and the earth shakes, God's clearing his throat. God's about to say or do something that only God can say or do. And in this moment, I want you to notice what happens, the sequence. It says here that the angels took to him the prayers of God's people and placed them on the fire, and that fire burned before God. And when God heard the prayers of his people, it takes us back to chapter 6, when those who had died for their faith are sitting around the throne of God, calling for God's justice on sin, not calling for the destruction of sinners, but the destruction of sin that ruins everything. God acts. And then I'm thinking to myself as I'm studying this, if my call is to endure, to hold on, to not quit, to not give up and become discouraged, what keeps me awake? Prayer. An appeal to the justice and mercy of God. For God to set everything right. Because when those prayers appear before God, it says here he responds. Now God is not a jukebox. You don't put a prayer in him and then he dances or sings. But there's something about our prayers that brings about the justice of God into the world. Church, I like that we're known as a Bible church. I'd be more excited if we were known as a Bible church that prayed a lot and prayed that the things of the Bible would be real and true in this world and that we might endure and hold on. So God has given warning and God is willing his will thoroughly. I'll be brief with this. It's almost a summation of where we've been so far in this series. But God is willing his will. God's going to get what God wants. One of the best definitions of, of the kingdom of God that I've ever heard is when God gets what God wants, that's the kingdom of heaven. Wherever that happens, whenever that happens, and however that happens, that's God's kingdom. Well, God will demonstrate his power over the gods of the world. He didn't just do it in Exodus 7 through 12. He's doing it every day. He continues to get his will done, and he will topple over our gods. Some of the worst pain in all of our spiritual walks is when God took our security blanket. Right, Linus? When he took that job you thought you'd need to have, or that money, or that future, or that career, or that person, and those things were taken from you, and you realized that wasn't just something I wanted. That was something I thought I needed. And when God takes away our gods, it's painful, but God's will is to show us that we have what we need, and if it's not him, we don't need it. And God will vindicate his people amidst opposition in this world. God will be for us. God is for us. And even should we die for the cause of Christ, he will be found faithful. And there will be justice for all the injustices done to those who trust him. And God will fully and finally uphold his justice amid sin. God is not lying. He's not a doddering old God who's going to forget what he said. He is offering a chance to repent and turn and trust him, even to believers, to give up the idols, to, to live your life and to trust him. 
and he will uphold his justice and he will judge sin. And by judging sin, sinners who are loyal will be found judged. And there's a passage in Revelation 10. All I can do is I couldn't leave it alone. I got to say this quick and I got to move. But in Revelation chapter 10, there's a moment where he shows John some visions. He says, write these down. And John begins to write. I imagine just like incredibly writing and writing and writing. And then he goes to write one thing and God goes, no, don't tell him that. And of course, what do I want to know now for the rest of the book? (laughs) What was that? And so there's a moment where God says, no, don't tell him that. And here's what I want to say as an encouragement, not an indictment, an encouragement. For those of you who feel like you have to snap the puzzle together and figure it out on your own, you already know in Revelation 10, you don't have all you need to know everything. But you do have enough to know what you need to know, which is that God wins this thing, and he wins it with his church. And through Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ, we can offer the mercy he's warning sin of every moment of our lives. So God has given warning, and God is willing his will. And lastly, God has secured us in Jesus. I'll just show you a sketch. In verses 1 and 2, John is told to go measure the temple. But there is no temple. Yet in this vision, he sees the temple. And if you have read Ezekiel at all, you know that God told Ezekiel to go measure the temple. And Ezekiel did. And it measured the place where then God promised, when you measure my temple, I'm going to reappear there and I'm going to lead my people and guide my people. But when John goes to measure the temple, there is no more temple. What's he measuring? He's measuring the church. He's measuring this kingdom of his people. And he begins to to measure the faithful. You might have noticed there's numbers, and Shane taught us well, you don't count numbers, you weigh numbers. 144,000 faithful are found. And we're like, is that all that gets into heaven? No, it's not a test of who's the greatest. These aren't the best Olympian athletes. That 144,000 would be the the 12 tribes of Israel, right? And the 12 apostles, right? Times 1,000? Can you see the number here? That the work of God's Old Testament patriarchs and the work of the apostles bringing the gospel to the world, that these all together are going to be exponentially exploding with people entering into his kingdom, breaking into it. Beautiful picture. So John's measuring that, where we don't, have, we don't need a temple today. You'll even find at the end of the Revelation, when the holy city, the Garden of Eden becomes a holy city, and we see this great vision of the holy city, and you'll notice that in the midst of it, there's no temple. Why? Because God's with us. We don't have to go to a building to meet him when he shows up. In fact, the old hymn used to say, he walks with me and he talks with me. The garden comes alive in the great city, the new Jerusalem. In verses 3 through 13, these two witnesses appear, and they preach the gospel. They proclaim the prophecy, and they're not well received. I just want to walk you quickly through what we learn from these two witnesses in the 11th chapter of Revelation. Our suffering is expected. In verse 2, the outer court of the temple is measured, and then the court of the Gentiles. So there was a section for the Jewish people to gather at the temple, and there was a, there was a section for those that were not Jewish but had converted, and then there was a, uh, an outer court for women and others. And all of those courts are gone, except it says here that in the court of the Gentiles, there's persecution. And it wasn't because they were Gentiles. What he's saying is that there will be persecution against the church as it grows. As it expands into the world and shares the message of faith, everything is going to change. And there's going to be persecution. And our suffering is expected. Whenever you and I stand up for the gospel, ask Moses when he stood before Pharaoh. Ask Elijah when he stood before Ahab and Jezebel. If you stand before people who have power and you remind them they're not really in power, you're going to have difficulty. 
And throughout the globe today, people are paying for the price of the gospel with their lives. This is not just because in America we don't see it. Trust me, we have like legislation after us, but we don't have what's going on in Africa, Afghanistan, India, other parts of the world. People are paying with their lives to preach the gospel. It's continuing on. Our message is clear. Our suffering is expected and our message is clear. Listen to me carefully. If you understand the revelation well, you'll know that the people of God are a proclaiming people. If you can, if you can be a believer and keep your mouth quiet about the glory of God, you, you might want to question what you believe. Because we are a proclaiming people. And we are not just out to proclaim that sin is wrong. There are people we love who are deep, worshiping sin, and we need to offer them the same thing that helped us escape our slavery. We need to stand before their Pharaoh and say, let our people go to walk out of slavery to life. And they says that these two witnesses are clothed in sackcloth, which is quite interesting. They're wearing mourning clothes. Now, not M-O-R-N, but M-O-U-R-N. They're grieving. And what are they grieving? They're not grieving their persecution. They're preaching the mourning sorrow over what sin has done to God's creation and how the good God is calling with a warning to no longer live in sin, but to walk in freedom and to experience this. But so many of us, even myself, we live in this condition where we have gotten rid of nine of our gods, but we've kept our two favorites. God wants to topple those gods over so that all we have is him and we realize the freedom of that. And our death will be temporary. This is a positive point, right? Look with me to Revelation 11, 7 and 8. And when they had finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. Jesus said, they've hated me, they'll hate you. They persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And then we see a glimpse in John that the church will pay the price with its life. And the world will celebrate when we're dead. And they'll celebrate that it was all a myth and all a fraud and that we've earned this and so on and so forth. But read verse 11. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them. Does that remind you of Genesis? When God breathed life into Adam? And they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. The world mocks what we stand for. They mock the price we paid. They mock us and persecute us because we believe in this mythology. We believe in these false claims and yet the resurrection of Jesus changed everything. The resurrection of Lazarus changed everything. And our resurrection will change everything. Do you remember the lamb last week? Slain but standing? That's oxymoronic. How can a dead thing stand the same way we will? We will truly be dead and one day stand in the resurrection. Our resurrection will be sure. Verse 12. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them powerful picture of God calling us home. When my boys were little, it's happened to both of them, and I, I find it kind of cute, but if you fall down in front of me, I'm, I'm a heathen. I'll giggle just a little bit if you're okay. My boys would be running around the house, and one of them would catch their leg on the end table or wipe out and hit their head on the couch. You know, they were half crying because they were hurt, and they were half crying because they were furious. You know that, what that cry is? You don't know whether to laugh at and giggle at them or act like you're really concerned, but they're kind of limping around holding their leg, and they want to cuss, but you're there, they can't, right? It's that pain. And I would look at both of my boys going, come see me. And they'd run across the room, hop up in my lap, and I would hold them and make them laugh or something. And then their legs straightened out and they would go back to life. I love the beauty of this picture. See, our life here is not bumping into the couch or hitting our head. 
It's real grief. It's real pain. It's real tragedy. It's real suffering. And God's going to say, come up here. Come see me. And we're going to. And he's going to let us. He's going to wipe every tear. And every sorrow is going to go. And all the grief is going to end. And God's going to fix everything that's wrong. He's going to fix everything that's wrong. How do I know that? Look at verses 15 through 19 with me. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet. And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders who sit on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God. Do you notice this? There's a lot of falling on our faces in heaven, right? We're going to be so overwhelmed by the beauty and majesty and grace of God, we're going to hardly be able to stand. We're going to be so overwhelmed, we're going to faint. Because we're going to be in the presence of something so good we never imagined it. And they're going to say... We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. There's something missing in verse 17. Throughout this text, it's always been the God who was, the God who is, and who is to come. What's missing? Who is and who was and who's here. It's no longer a promise. It's a fact. The king of the universe is home. And yet he says, come here and I will wipe your tears, but you're going to join me in the new heaven and earth reigning over creation, just like I asked Adam and Eve to. And that will be our greatest gift. Verse 18, the nations raged, but your wrath came and the time for the dead to be judged. And this is what 14-year-old Mark didn't read. And rewarding your servants that even though times will be hard for believers, God is not abandoning us or punishing us He's with us. The prophets and the saints and those who fear your name, both small and great, and I love this, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Where does wrath of God come from? For the way that we have destroyed what he's given us. Willingly, intentionally devastated the good gift he gave us. Then God's temple in heaven was opened and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. Guess what, church? Indiana Jones didn't find the ark. God's had it all along. It's his mercy seat. It's in his presence. And every time we go into the presence of God, never forget that stands before you is the mercy seat of God where we come and lay our sins and he forgives them. And it's seen within his temple. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. He's clearing his throat, isn't he? about to do what he said he was going to do. God's moving. Aslan's on the move, church. Not one day, not in the future. Don't get caught in the sequence. Get caught in the truth. God is going to bring judgment on the destroyers of his creation. Don't be one of them. Repent. Heed the warning. Return. Because the mercy of God is that smooth. It's accepting what he's done. King Jesus is on the throne. And he is ruling, and his kingdom is now. It may appear like a blade of grass breaking the surface of the earth, but don't you doubt that the seeds of that blade of grass are going to spread themselves all over the globe, and God's kingdom is rising around us. Don't give up. Don't get discouraged and quit. Remember, the revelation is to call us to hold on to our faith. The revealed Jesus is one worth waiting for, one worth trusting. And we bring ourselves to him with spirits of repentance 
Repentance is not feeling sorry. Repentance is living differently because of that sorrow, because of that glory. God's will will be done. May it be done here with this group of people as it is every day in heaven. Let's stand together. Thanks again for checking out this podcast. We hope this teaching helped you to discover completeness in Jesus and encourages you to help others do the same. For more resources or to learn about Christ Church in general, visit us online at cco.church.